God, we thank you that we have your word. Thank you that you have preserved it for us. Thank you that you have, even in the first place, uh, condescended to humans to communicate to us uh, through your written word. We thank you that you've uh, made yourself known in creation, uh, but in a special and particular way, you've made yourself known through your scriptures. And we praise you for that, God. We uh, thank you that we uh, have unbelievable access to your word, that there are people um, in the world right now who would give anything to, to have not just a, a piece of scripture, but to have the, the, the full portion that, that, that we have and we hold and, and that we're able to, uh, to access. So we thank you for, for that kindness, God, and, and we pray that you would help us to, to steward that gift that you have given uh, us uh, through your word. Help us to steward it well in this moment by, by having hearts that are humble and contrite and that want to tremble under your word, not to master it, uh, but to be mastered by it. And, and not to uh, just accumulate knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but to know you and go deeper with you so that we can walk in obedience and live in a way that honors you, glorifies you, and shows off your goodness to, to, the, to our neighbors, to the world, and, and to all the people around us. We pray as we come to your word, God, that you would help us to behold uh, the beauty of your character. We pray that you would help us to behold the beauty of Jesus Christ. We pray you would also expose our sin and our need, that we would be comforted and transformed by the gift of your grace. God, would you do these things by the power of your spirit through your word read and preached. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in uh, the book of Exodus. We're starting Exodus uh, right now. Um, and we're going to be in Exodus for six months. So we're going to spend, we're gonna spend some time in this book. We're six months. It's got 40 chapters, so it only makes sense, right? Uh, and Exodus is a book that uh, you are probably somewhat familiar with. You don't need a church background to be familiar with Exodus because they make movies about the things that happen in Exodus. And it, it's so monumental. It's so epic. It is a, if you even look at, look at it simply as a piece of literature, it's almost unmatched. And it's just this beautiful, epic tale. And so people are familiar with the crossing of the Red Sea. People are familiar with the golden calf. People are familiar with some of these these different major elements, the burning bush where God reveals himself to Moses. But Exodus, if you look at it carefully, will give you insight into Jesus in the New Testament like almost no other book in scripture. One commentator puts it like this, no book will repay careful study if we wish to understand the central message of the New Testament Then this book, the center of the Old Testament, and the record of the establishment of the Old Covenant. So Exodus is critical for having a deep grasp of the person and work of Jesus Christ and the New Testament and who God is and what it means to worship him and to follow him. Exodus is absolutely critical. One of the reasons Exodus is absolutely critical is because when you look at Exodus, the people of God are saved from something to something, just as Christ saves his people from something to something. In Exodus, the people have to deal with what does it mean to be the people of God? What does it mean to live with God as our Lord and our our ruler and our God? What does that look like? How do we do that before a watching world? Well, isn't that the same question that we wrestle with? What does it look like to worship God in this day and age? What does it look like to be the people of God to a watching world and to a culture that may not understand who our God is? And so Exodus is critical 
for a deep understanding of God, a deep understanding of Christ, and a deep understanding of what does it mean to be the people of God. Exodus will help us in all of those things. So I want to give us an overview of, uh, of the book. This, the series, is, we're going to actually break this series into really four series that are going to highlight some of the different themes in Exodus. We're going to start with deliverance. It's about the first 15 chapters is the story of God delivering his people out of slavery from Egypt. That is the exodus, the coming out of uh, enslavement in Egypt. So deliverance. And then we're going to look at provision, how God provides for his people as they wander from Egypt to the land that God has promised them. Then we're going to look at covenant, where God formalizes and establishes this particular special relationship with his people by the giving of the law and the Ten Commandments and, and, and kind of lays out, this is what it means for me to be your Lord and your God. When we look at that, we're going to understand the law and grace and commands and, and covenant and commandments and, the, uh, and walking through the Ten Commandments. And then lastly, the, the book ends with uh, the people of God preparing to live and dwell near to the presence of God with the building and establishing of the tabernacle. Uh, and so that's the layout of the book. And all of these things are actually themes to what it means uh, to experience the kingdom of God. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God is at hand, well, he's talking about God's people in God's place near to God under God's rule. And that's exactly what we have happen in Exodus. God saves his people out of slavery so that they can worship him. He's leading them into a place so that they can be near him. And then he calls them to establish the tabernacle so that he can dwell with them. It's the absolute pattern of the kingdom of God that Jesus ultimately brings in its fullness. And so Exodus is going to help us understand God. It's going to help us understand Christ. It's going to help us understand what does it mean to be worshipers of God in a deep and powerful way that we would not be able to understand if we do not look at this book. Okay? You guys sold? You guys convinced we should give six months to this? Sold. One person is buying. We'll take it. Sold. So let's turn to the text now. We're going to start in Exodus chapter 1. If you have a Bible, you can flip it open. If not, you can just uh, look up slightly and you'll see it in front of you. Exodus 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter. These are the names of the son of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, God, and Asher. All these descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too mighty, are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithon and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. It made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, 
one of whom was named Shifra, the other Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. for They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is how Exodus begins. If you've seen Star Wars, you're used to font coming at you at a strange angle. The first four verses of Exodus are, is the font coming at you at the strange angle. It's, it's setting the, the backdrop of, of what has happened up until this point, because Exodus is, obviously it's be, before Genesis, and not always is the order linked in, in actual chronology, but this is very much the continuation of what has been happening. So much so that really the beginning of this book is kind of like a dot, 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 and, so that what we've just read in Genesis is like, oh, okay, it's a dot, 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 ellipses, so it continues on here. And what we have seen up until this point is that God is, in Genesis, has created the world, he's created uh, humanity, he's created uh, us to dwell with him. We have rebelled from that, but God is now starting a new plan to have humanity dwell with him again. And he establishes this through particular people in Genesis, but particularly through a person named Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing to the nations, and I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be fruitful and multiply. And the rest of Genesis is the seed of Abraham. It's us following, oh, is this family going to make it? They're being, they're being rebellious. They're being stupid. People are trying to trick them. They're tricking people. Are they going to make it? Is their line going to continue so that the blessing will come to the nations? Ultimately, Christ. And so what we see in Genesis is that, yeah, the people, Abraham's seed, his, his family, his lineage is building. It's growing. It's growing. Oh, it's going great. Oh, it's going bad. Oh, God has stepped in again. And it just continues to move forward until as they multiply and get big, there's a famine. Now, if there's no food... For a long period of time, there will be no life. And so there's a problem. And God works a circumstance through Joseph. You guys know Joseph, the many colored what? The coat, right? You guys know Joseph? Okay. This is, Joseph is important for, for this. And so Joseph ends up in, slave, uh, in captivity in Egypt, but then he rises to a position of power, which works perfectly. God, in his, his sovereign, mysterious ways, actually uses the evil that was used against Joseph to sustain the line of Abraham so that the blessing could come and that Abraham's line would not be exterminated in famine. And so the people of God end up in Egypt, verses 1 through 4. And when they started in Egypt, how many of them were there? Well, just 70 persons. It's their little old crew. It's just like you, probably you and your extended family, just them. And then over decades, decades, generation, generation, they multiply, they become fruitful, and they are dwelling in the land. They are basically a nation within the nation of Egypt. They are a big, populous people. 
which is what they're supposed to do. God commands creation to be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 1.28, and that's exactly what the people of Israel are doing. They're being fruitful. They're multiplying. Things are going good, but here's the problem. They're not in the land, in the place that God has promised them to be in. But things are going great in Egypt. It's all good. Because Joseph was this person of power, and the ruler of Egypt, Pharaoh, loved Joseph because Joseph was a humble, kind, generous, and godly servant to the people of Egypt. They had a great relationship. But then something changes. Verse 8, a new king comes. And this new king doesn't care for Joseph, doesn't know Joseph, doesn't respect what Joseph's done. And he says, well, we're going to do things different now under my watch. The people of Israel are not going to be cared for, and we're not just going to have them here as as shepherds as they most likely were in Goshen and all these things. No, no, no. There's too many of them. So to make sure that they don't join our enemies and overthrow us, we need to do something. And so we get a new policy in 10. This is the language of a formal thing happening. Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to enslave them. They're big, they're strong. Before they take us out, let's put them under the bondage of a systematic slavery and oppression and that they will work for us because we're afraid of them. And so the people of God go from being in a place of favor in Egypt to now being in a place of brutal oppression. And the question hovering over all of this is, where is God? Because God has made a promise to them that they're to be fruitful and multiply, to dwell in his land, to be his people, and through them would come a blessing to the nations. But how is that promise going to be fulfilled if they are now in captivity in a foreign land? One of the things that we need to see in this text is the role of idolatry and fear. Notice verse 10. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. If war breaks out, they join our enemies, they fight against us and escape from the land. Notice the end of 12. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. There is an idolatrous fear that paves the way for an unprecedented evil. This is a picture of the danger of idolatry. Egypt, the pharaoh, the king, does not reverence, fear, respect God, but reverences and fears and respects and cherishes self. He cherishes his nation above everything so that he's driven by the idolization of his nation, of their safety, to the point that instead of dignifying these people, he says, well, let's enslave them. Instead of respecting these people, well, let's, let's put them under a systematic oppression so that we remain safe, so that they don't join our enemies, so that they don't rise up. Let's bring them low to make sure that what we cherish, our nation, our safety, my name, my reputation is kept intact. Fear of safety, fear of the other, fear 
It's driven by fear. This is important for us to recognize. I don't think this is the main thing in this passage. This is important for us to recognize because whatever you fear most has you on a leash. Whatever you fear most controls you, and what you fear most is tethered to what you cherish most. This is a question of worship. This is a question of an idol, something that is elevated into the ultimate place above God. This is a picture, what Pharaoh is doing here is a picture of the danger of idolatry. So if you elevate anything above God in your life, it will lead and spiral out to chaos. So when you elevate your nationality, your culture as supreme, whether subtly or uh, explicitly, you're on the path to oppression, to racism, and you're on the path to things like this. Right? We know this in a more um, familiar way or level when we elevate the people, uh, people's opinions of us. When we put too much weight on how people see us, we are living constant fear and anxiety and worry of how we're being perceived. That's idolatry. And so whatever you fear most is tied to what you cherish most. And if you cherish the most or if you cherish something as supreme something that ought not to be supreme, you're on a path to chaos. And see, what happens here is what you cherish will also begin to blind you as to what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad, what is helpful and what is detrimental. Because think about this. The people of God are actually doing exactly what God has called them to do, exactly what God has called humanity to do. In Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, build things, flourish, create culture. That's what the people of Israel are doing. But what is that? what does that look like in Pharaoh's eyes? Is that a good thing or is that an evil thing? It's evil to Pharaoh. It's evil to Pharaoh because what he worships, what he idolizes, what he cherishes is not God, but self. And so when he sees actually something that is good, he deems it as something that is evil. Pharaoh is actually, and this is uh, throughout Exodus, Pharaoh is actually putting himself in direct opposition to God. Because the people of God are, are simply doing what God has told them to do. And Pharaoh says, no, that's evil, because he idolizes self and his nation. Now, this is important for you because your idols will do the same thing. Your idols will blind you. Your idols will deceive you because they blind you. We all know how good we are at self-justifying. If there's something that we really want to do, we know how good we are in kind of talking ourselves in a circle so that we get to the path that we want to get to. Right? You, do, you, ever try a, you ever try a diet? You stick with it for a little bit or try a workout plan or, or even a CBR or the Bible reading plan. Well, I'll make up for the next 10 chapters next week. Or we do so good at talking our way around things to justify for the thing that we really want, right? But what's happening with Pharaoh is that on a moral scale to the hundredth degree. But any idol isn't that far away from taking you to that very same destination, now, if you live for people's opinions and people's approval, 
You know that you'll die from their rejection. And so what you'll do is you'll, you'll start to plan and compromise and do all sorts of things and justify things in your mind to get that thing that you cherish. Oh, it won't be so bad if I work another weekend. Well, it won't be so bad if I kind of fudge these numbers, right? You, you're just on the same path because of the idol, because you're worshiping something that is not meant to be worshiped. There's an old quote from a, uh, writer Thomas Kramer, he says it like this, he says, what the heart loves, right, what you worship, what you fear, what you desire, the will chooses and the mind justifies. What the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. This is why uh, scripture uh, encourages us to uh, exhort one another daily that we may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, right? This is, this is what idols do to us. What idols do to us. So much so that if you look at verse 14, this repeated phrase that they ruthlessly made the people work and they, they did this and made the people work. Work is in that verse about seven times. You're like, why is it there? Well, it's because Pharaoh was really making the people of, of, of God worship him. He's really taking them to say, hey, look at me. I give yourself to us rather than them being given over to God. That's how deep the idolatry is going in Pharaoh's heart. And idols deceive us, blind us, it lead us into chaos. And so what's hovering over this text is still this question, though. Where is God? Because while the idolatry of Pharaoh is wicked and evil, it is leading to unprecedented evil. It is spinning out and out of control. Look at, look at, the, look at the escalation of, of evil that happens in this passage. First, verse 11, the people of God are systematically enslaved. Can you, can you comprehend this? Can you comprehend living in a land, doing your thing, being shepherds, being good citizens, and then next thing you know, you hear it through word of mouth, the taskmasters come home by home, and they enslave the people. You go from at one point being free, shepherding, doing your thing, to the next day you have a taskmaster over you as you build bricks. And you are forced into labor. You have no freedom, no choice, no agency. You belong to Pharaoh now. So what happens in verse 11? Then in verse 14, it increases because the viciousness is brought to a new level. Because the people were still multiplying, so they say, well, let's be ruthless to them. But then that's not enough. In verse 15, Pharaoh calls for population control says it's not enough to enslave them, we need to exterminate them. It's not enough to create this system of bondage, we need to create a system of death. So he enlists, tries to enlist midwives to come and to kill the boys that, that the people of God would not multiply, driven by fear and idolatry, spinning out into evil. And then Pharaoh wants to take it to another degree in, in verse 22. Pharaoh now calls for his own people to kill the children of God. He calls for his own people to take the, the newborn boys and to give them, to kill them by putting them in the Nile, the giver and taker of life. Do, do you see how the evil spirals out and gets worse and worse and more wicked? This is the danger of idolatry. This is what happens when we elevate self over God, when we put ourselves opposed to God. What the heart chooses, the mind wills, and we justify. 
So where is God? Where is God? He's made this promise to his people that there would be a blessing would come to the nations through them. How can that happen if they're going to be exterminated? Where is he to hear the cries of his people? Could you imagine hearing the prayers of the people of God at this point in time? That they would be literally crying out to God for relief, for justice, for escape, for something. Where is God? In the face of evil, where is God? In the face of darkness, where is God? See, in the face of darkness, in the face of evil, in the face of oppression, God is never distant, but God is always working. In the face of evil, God is never distant. He is always working for deliverance. Because God hates injustice. Psalms testify that the foundation of God's throne is righteousness and justice. It's essential to his character, fundamental to his person and activity in the world. And here's what God is doing. God is going to protect and free his people through a miracle, through the crossing of the Red Sea. We know that that's coming, but God is doing something right now. He's going to protect and prepare deliverance for his people through his people. That's what God is doing. God is preparing to deliver his people through his people because of obedience that is fueled not by fear of an idol or offer an idol, but obedience that is fueled by fear of God. See, Pharaoh fears and reverences and worships self, but God is going to bring deliverance for his people through his people who fear, worship, and reverence not Pharaoh, but God. Fear of God is a strange phrase. It may seem odd to us, but it's central in Scripture. This is, I want you to think of this as a holy awe. Fear of God is a holy awe. Think about the sun. The sun is big. Do you, would we agree? We would agree. Good. <laughs> the sun is bright. The sun is awe-inspiring, but the sun will also hurt you, right? How many of you have felt the... Uh, the, the, the pain of, of sunburn. How many of you, you have been there? Right, that day at the beach, we didn't pack it in a bag, and you're just peeling, right? It's like a little lizard peeling for the next two weeks, right? So we, we have awe over the sun. We, we reverence the sun in a, in a right way. It's this big, beautiful, massive thing. We have awe over it. We, feel its, we see its beauty. We feel its benefit. But we also know if we don't approach this thing rightly, it is powerful and it will not go well for us. That's the fear of God. It's holy awe. It's an understanding that God is awe-inspiring, but he is also powerful and needs to be reverenced and treated properly. Otherwise, it is right and just for us to receive accountability. That is the fear of God. And these two women, Shifra and Pua, they fear God, and they fear God which Proverbs 1 says is the beginning of wisdom. If you want wisdom and knowledge in life, you have to start with a right understanding and approach to our Creator. They fear God, and because they fear God, they take righteous action. Because they fear God, they disobey Pharaoh. Because they fear God, they resist Pharaoh. Because they fear God, they stand up for righteousness and justice, and they disobey an evil edict, because they fear God. And this is what we learned from them. 
They are exemplars of righteous faith in action. They are exemplars of trusting God in the midst of darkness, in the midst of bleakness, in the midst of a situation that says God is not here. Well, if they really believed that God was not there, they would have just went with what Pharaoh said because most likely there is a consequence waiting. But they say, no, God is still God. We trust him, we will obey him, and we will disobey Pharaoh. And so when the edict comes to kill the boys as they're born, they don't do it. They deliver the boys. They get a little slick with their talk and say, well, the Hebrew women, they're so quick. Try it. It's an example of the uh, shrewd as a serpent, innocent as a dove that Jesus commends and, and calls us to. And so they stand for God in righteous obedience because of their fear of God that leads them to properly understand how they are to relate to Pharaoh. That Pharaoh is not God. God is God. And the text is pointing them out as examples to us. And we know this because we get their names. We don't get the name of Pharaoh. Not once through this book do we get the name of Pharaoh. But we get the names of these two women because they fear God and are an example of righteous faith. The author wants us to see that. And they risk because they trust and fear God. And their risk, their righteous action, it's actually paving the way for the complete deliverance of the people of God. What they do here paves the way for the freedom, liberation, and salvation of the people of God through the obedience of Shifra and Pua. This is how, how important the fear of God is. So we see that uh, Pharaoh's idolatry spirals out into more and more evil, but the fear of God paves the way for deliverance. That's, that's the contrast here in the text. And here's, here's some of what this means for us, is that if you fear people more than you fear God, you will be no good to the kingdom of God. It will be impossible for you to be an agent of God's goodness, justice, and righteousness in this world if you fear people more than you fear God. It will be impossible because you will risk nothing you always wonder, how will I be perceived? You always wonder, will this be comfortable? Will this be safe? Will this be easy? It will be impossible for you to put any points on the board for the kingdom of God. It won't happen until you fear God and give him the awe, the reverence, the loyalty that no one else in your life has. You can't be a fruitful disciple of Jesus if you fear people more than you fear God. Because when people and God come to a clash, you're going to roll with people. So the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's central to the type of righteous action that leads to deliverance that we see modeled by these two midwives. So the, the question is, do you fear God? Does he have the reverence and awe in your life over and above all other things? Do you fear God? 
Now, here's the, here's the thing attached to this. You, we can't fear God if we don't know God. We can't have awe over something that we have no clue about. We can't cherish something that we're uninformed about. So do we know the character of God? Do we know his holiness? Do we know his power? Do we know his justice? Do we know his beauty? Do we know his mercy? Do we know his grace? Do we know his omnipotence? Do we know that he's all-knowing? Do we know that he's sovereign? Do we know that he's beautiful? Do we know that he's independent and free to do as he pleases? Do we know the character of God? And the test, if we know God in his character, is not what we can recite on a Sunday, but really how we live on our worst day. That is the test if we know God and fear him. Not what we say on a Sunday or sing on a Sunday, but what we do on our worst day. Think about this. In your darkest trials, on your darkest days, that is the test is if we really know God on a deep level, if we really reverence him in a deep level. Because think of the, the, the situation and circumstance that Shifra and Pua are in. This is life or death for them. There is a cost if they risk. There is a cost for them to stand up and to reject Pharaoh. How do we know there's a cost? Because Pharaoh is the type of guy to kill children to get his way. So what do we think he's going to do with the, with the women, the, the elderly midwives that resist him? There is a cost for them. But because they fear God, they do not concern themselves primarily with the cost, but primarily with what is right in the eyes of their Lord. So they resist, they obey. So the question, if we know the character of God, we reverence him, we worship him, is not what we sing on a Sunday, but what we do on our worst day. When you're asking like Israel, God, where are you? When you're facing a trial in your life that is overwhelming, when it feels like God is distant, how do you relate to him then? That is the true test as to whether we know him in a deep way and deep level. Martin Luther King said something uh, to, to, to this effect. We don't, we don't know what we truly worship until our highest hopes turn into our darkest nights. Isn't this exactly what's happening to these two women? Their highest hopes are turning into their darkest nights, and what do we find? That No, they, they truly do understand their God. Martin Luther King is a prime example of this in, in many ways. He gives this speech, you, you may have seen it, the, the night before he's assassinated. He gives, this, he gives this speech, you can watch it online. He says, I am not fearing no man. My eyes have seen the coming of the glory of the Lord. And if you watch this speech, you see the way that he's speaking. You see what's in his eyes. You see the way that his body is articulating and matching what he's speaking. And you can see that that is a person that truly knows the God of the Scriptures. That is a person that fears God more than he fears man. Because he says, I understand my God, I understand what is right in his eyes, what is evil in his eyes, I will work for what is right, and I don't care what it costs me. You can tell that that person has been through a fire of having his life threatened daily for years and has come to the point of fearing God more than he fears man, which leads to righteous action, which paves the way for a deliverance of a people, much like we see here. Through Shifra and Pua. So the question becomes this Do we know, worship, and fear God deeply and truly? Do we know and fear God deeply and truly? Now we have such a benefit that these two midwives don't have. 
we've seen the story of redemption unfold. We've seen Christ. We've seen Jesus Christ. We've seen the revelation of God. The radiance of the glory of God. We've seen. We've seen God send his son for us. We've seen Jesus climb a cross for us. We've seen Jesus nail to a cross for us. We've seen Jesus rise for us. We've seen Jesus ascend for us. We've heard, seen the gospel. And so our reverence and, and worship for God, we have such a, such a pathway into that that these women didn't have. We see the beauty of God. He would give his son. We see the, the awe and fear of God in understanding that sin must be punished. We've seen the cross. We've seen something that they haven't seen. So for us to fear and worship God, God has given us a, a sort of head start, a sort of boost, a sort of uh, unimaginable help to understand who he is by giving us Christ. And so if you're like, oh, I can't fear God, oh man, God has set the table for us. So we just need to show up and, and feast because it's right there. Christ has been given. So we need to behold the gospel to fear God. That's why we talk about as gospel people, we want to become gospel-centered believers. That just means this, we want to keep Christ and the gospel close to our hearts, often on our minds, and seize it by faith. Then we will know God and fear him and reverence him like no other. He won't have a rival in our life when we keep close and keep in our minds and seize by faith the fact that Christ was given for our sins. God won't have a rival. No one else has done something like that for us. When we would deserve the complete opposite, he will have no rival, but it's when we forget these things that the rival idols come in and, and try to woo us and try to seize the gap in our hearts and in our minds. So we see Christ in the gospel, we will reverence and, and fear God. And people that reverence and fear God are the type of men and women that we need right now. And by the power of the gospel, this can be you. Someone who fears God despite the risks. Those who fear Christ and, and make him known both in the way that they live, but in the things that they declare. You, you by the power of the gospel, can be the, the type of a person who stands for righteousness and justice in God's name despite the cost. You, by the power of the gospel, can, can be the, the type of person who fears Christ and does the right thing for vulnerable families, for the, for the unborn, as we see in this text. You, by the power of the gospel, can be the person who, who fears Christ and, and stands for the other, stands for the immigrant, stands for the outsider, and, and does justice in God's name according to God's word. You can be that by the power of the gospel. Right? By the power of the gospel, you can follow Christ despite whatever ridicule may end up coming your way, by the power of the gospel, which leads you to reverence Jesus above all others, by the power of Christ, that is possible for you if you stay close to the cross and seize the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith. Where does this start? It starts by knowing God, because we can't fear him if we don't know him. We know God through his scripture. We know God through the gospel. And we know God in this way. By knowing that when it feels like God is distant, God is always working for deliverance. 
when it feels like God is distant, God is always working for deliverance for his people. He's always working for righteousness and justice. I want you to understand just the scope of this thing, of what's happening here, because these women have no clue what is going to come through their obedience that is fueled by the reverence of God. They have no clue. They have no clue that God is going to raise up Moses, and he's going to be the deliverer that God uses to free his people. They have no idea. They have no idea by their obedience that that is the road that is now being traveled on. They have no clue. See, in their minds, everything is bleak and dark, and there is one little, little glimmer of light, their obedience, but they don't understand in God's eyes, the whole thing is blown wide open and deliverance is on the way. So we need to understand that when God seems to be distant, God is working for deliverance. And if these women don't fear God and obey, we have no Moses, we have no David, and ultimately, we have no Christ. But through their fear of God and trust that God would make a way, they do not bow down to Pharaoh, but they bow down to God in declaration and in action. They risk their lives in obedience to God, and God uses that to deliver his people. God is working even when he seems to be distant. Now, we can't end with exalting them as heroes, though we, we do need to reverence and, and honor, but we need to understand that in so many ways, they're, they're, they're a shadow of Jesus. That the, these women, these midwives, they, they risk through their obedience, but Jesus, through his obedience, goes not just to risk, but goes to die. Jesus obeys God, fears God, reverences God over the consequences, not to the point of risk, but to the point of death, to the point of dying for us so that we could be set free. See, deliverance is coming through the risk of these women, but deliverance is here for us through the death of Jesus Christ. And when we sense that, when we seize that, when we trust that, when we believe that, we fear reverence in our God. Because we know that in Christ, we have seen the clearest picture of things looking bleak, but deliverance being on the way. Doesn't the cross look bleak? Doesn't God's son hanging from a Roman tree, crucified as a criminal, look like, well, that ended poorly? Doesn't it look like evil has won? Doesn't it look like God's purposes have actually been thwarted? But in reality, God is actually working deliverance through the death of his son. God is always working for the deliverance of his people, even when things seem bleak and desperate. I wonder what would happen if you trusted that truth for the trials in your life right now. That God, because of Christ, is working in your life right now for his glory, for your good, despite the appearances. I wonder what would be different for you. Because Exodus 1 is showing us that when God seems to be distant, God is always working for the deliverance of his people. We see it through these women, but we see it most clearly through the work of his son. Let's take a moment to respond to God's word with silent prayer. I want to encourage you as we do this to perfectly even consider what are those idols that you are prone to fear and to reverence 
above and over God and to bring those before God in confession and repentance, knowing that he will meet you with mercy in Jesus. Let's take a moment to pray silently. Lord, we ask for uh, forgiveness for our lack of uh, reverence and, and fear of you. We admit, God, that we uh, often fear, fear people uh, more than you, and it's a snare in our lives. We feel its effects. We, we feel how it holds us back. We, we feel how it fills us with uh, worry, uh, anxiety. It fills us even with a constant questioning of ourselves, a constant evaluation of ourselves, rather than trusting you and the, the verdict that is over our lives in Christ. We ask for your help, God. Would you help us to bow down to you, to reverence you, to worship you, and to not turn to, to idols or to rivals? We ask for you to uh, show us in our hearts the glory of your salvation, the beauty of your name. We ask for you to remind us over and over, that in the face of evil or trials, you are not distant, you are faithful, you are present, you are working all things for the good of your people. And we know this because of the work of your son. We ask that you would help us to trust you in the face of our trials. We ask that you would help us to, to take you at your word in awe, reverence, and faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.